0: And welcome to The Unexplained Truths. Stories of life, healing, and unexplained events. We're your hosts. I'm Julie. And I'm Genevieve. On this show, we will explore and uncover the hidden truths about life, healing, and unexplained events with our guests through Real
1: Stories. So get ready to be educated, enlightened, and inspired through our guests and their stories. Today, our guest is David
0: Newman. Dr. David Newman, certified clinical medical hypnotherapist practices in Jefferson City, Missouri. Working with a worldwide clientele, Dr. Newman has the unique opportunity to conduct privately funded research in several areas of scientific explorations, including past life regressions, spiritual progression, brainwave research with psychics. Dr. Newman is classically trained scientist holding degrees from Arizona State University, U.S. Davis, and Duke University. Traditionally, he served residency at MD Anderson Oncology. Dr. Newman teaches both business and behavioral science at Lincoln University in Jefferson City and lectures extensively at medical and behavioral conferences. Dr. Newman has published Silent Scream, how to find, interview, and hire the perfect hypnotherapist. Get what you want from the bedroom to the boardroom. David, how are you?
2: I'm fantastic, how are you doing?
1: Good. Great. David, I just wanna say thank you so much for being here. So Dave, I met David about almost two years ago at a conference where he was giving a lecture on spiritual regression and I was just so fascinated and I'm just so happy to have you here because I just want to learn more about it and I think the world should learn more about it too.
2: Thanks, but you attended the lecture, you know all there is to know, get ready to go. (laughs)
0: Uh, David, uh, how did you get into hypnosis? What was your process with that?
2: Um, actually, I'm, I'm clinically trained in the allopathic medical world, but um, when I was in the Air Force, I was trained in hypnosis to use hypnosis for pain management because in the unit I was at, we didn't have a medic when we were in combat. And so wow. fast forward now a whole bunch of years, and we moved uh, from Canada, where my wife is from, to Jefferson City Missouri, and we were getting ready to go back to Canada, For an extended vacation. And before we did that, the doctor uh, looked at my wife and he said, I would like to put you in the hospital for 24 hours just to rehydrate you instead of a little bit dehydrated. And that 24 hours turned into two weeks. At the end of the two weeks, I was told she had six months to live, provided she had zero stress and didn't do anything. She couldn't pick anything more or anything heavier than a half a gallon of milk up. Wow. Um, They wanted us to put a bed in in the living room and stuff like that. And after I had all these specialists that came in and and told us that, I just looked at the primary care physician and I said, do you concur with this? And he said, well, no, but all the tests say that. So I don't ever give up on a patient, but you better get your affairs in order. And I said, well, I think I know a way to work with this and I'm going to have to do it under your supervision because I'm going to have to go back and get recertified and I went back and I started using hypnotherapy on her and that was over 14 years ago and she's fine and she's doing everything that they said she would never do. Um, so everything turned out fine and that's how I really got into practicing hypnotherapy.
1: Wow. That is ama- that's an amazing story. Yeah. Um, can you just talk a little bit about spiritual regression and what is the difference exactly between spiritual regression and spiritual progression?
2: Okay, Uh, spiritual regression and spiritual progression are really part of the same therapy. And what we do in the spiritual regression is we actually regress the person back through the time in the womb and we move them up into the spiritual world, okay? Then the progression part is where we move them into the spiritual world and we actually take them to their council of elders who basically are our advisors. They're there, they're there with us in between lives, and they're the ones that present us with all of the opportunities when we come back to Earth. You know, this is what you can do, this is what the family will be like and stuff like that. Um, So what we do in that particular therapy when I progress a person into that spiritual world what they come away with is a deeper understanding of what it is that they were meant to do down here on Earth and why certain things keep repeating on them. Uh, it may be relationships that keep always going bad, or it may be jobs that they just keep job hopping and flipping. They just can't find what they're supposed to do. When they come out of that, they have a very clear uh, understanding of what it is that they really were supposed to do what they want to do and how they're going to do it And it's very very clear and when you see the person go into stasis and then come out of stasis It is a marked difference. I mean they are like totally different people. It's really cool
0: Do you see like a difference in their face or a difference? Like how, how are they are they different?
2: Um, well From a physical standpoint, yes, they they usually move much more fluidly when they walk. Um, It looks like they've had the weight of the world lifted off of their shoulders. Um, From a psychological standpoint, they are super, super calm. Oftentimes, they have a very, very deep understanding of spirituality that they may have never had in the past. Um, I get that a lot with people that just say, I'm not religious. I don't believe in anything. And when they come back, they believe. And just about everything. And the most important thing that they come back with is almost every one of them has said the same thing. This is not what I was taught going to Sunday school, and this is not what I was raised with. This is something totally different. And they no longer have a fear. They don't have a fear of their life here. They don't have a fear of dying, which is really neat.
1: Wow, wow. And I understand that you have to actually put them in a theta state. In order to? Uh, actually
2: into a gamma state, not theta, oh, but a gamma state.
1: Okay, and so how, how do you go about doing that? Uh, we cheat, we use brainwave music that uh, <laughs> is set for,
2: for a frequency for gamma. And what happens is when you're listening to that through headphones, your brain will actually create sympathetic vibrations so that the gamma waves will increase. And gamma waves are very low um, in comparison to the alpha and the data or, and the beta, and the delta, and the theta. So when we're watching this on the monitor, we're actually watching the brain waves. And all of a sudden, you watch that gamma shoot off the charts. You know that you're there, and you've got them now in an area where they're very, very receptive. So a lot of people think that theta is a spiritual um, brain wave, and actually, it's the gamma. This is that's the real spiritual one. Interesting. Theta is where you go into in heavy meditation.
0: Interesting. And you use, um, you use a type of headband to measure those brainwaves during this process, right? And could you tell us a little bit more about how that works?
2: Sure. Uh, this, this is what we use, and this is called a Muse device. Oh, cool. And, and on the inside of the Muse device, and I don't know if you guys can see it, but you see these little silver... Uh, kind of rectangles. Those are yeah. actually sensors and they pick up the brain waves as well as back here these uh, flexible ear sensors. They pick up the brain waves too and so actually I can uh, put it on and use a piece of equipment that will give me a snapshot instantly of every brainwave in your head, what part of the brain it's uh, activated in, where it is, the strength of it, the whole nine yards. It's, it's really amazing. But that is a separate application other than the one that comes with Muse. Muse was designed by Interoxin to be a meditation device to help people relax. And what we've done is we've taken it and we've moved it basically off the curvature of the earth and are using it for something much more advanced. And it's really cool because we have uh, the Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins University Hospital, Uh, the University of Toronto Hospital and NASA all looking at the research that I'm sending to Interoxin on all of the brain waves and spiritual progression and regression that we do. And they're all looking at it. And so it's really kind of cool to have that type of peer review when I'm, you know, creating scientific studies.
1: Wow, that is cool. Wow. So I'm curious, do you ever find that when you have a client or a patient that they come in with resistance? And if so, how do you deal with that?
2: Um, Yeah, a lot of people come in with resistance. Uh, Mainly analytical people come in with resistance because with an analytical, one of their primary uh, functions is they wanna be in control all the time. And what they don't know is that when you're in hypnosis, you're in the ultimate control. It's not the hypnotist that's in control. It's the actual subject that's in control. Wow. So a lot of people will go to, like, uh, you know, project graduation, things like that, and they see people doing all types of silly and crazy things, and they all think that, you know, I'm totally out of control. So, yeah, we have that resistance. That That's not a big deal. That's easy to get through. If you understand uh, the language that the person naturally uh um, uses or likes to receive information in. For example, analyticals, because they need to be in control all the time, you give everything, all your suggestions are inferred, they're never direct, and you always give them a choice. You can either go to A or B. It doesn't really matter which way. So for example, when I have a person go down a staircase, for example, I'll have them walk on a golden pathway or sidewalk made of real gold bricks, and I just tell them, start walking. And I don't care which way they go. Because it's all going to lead to the same place. But I have to let them feel that they've got that control so that they can go. And Mm -hmm. if I want them to look at something, I may say something like, uh, you may notice that off to the right you have an old-time park bench, the type that have wooden slats that are actually comfortable to sit in. Do you see that? And they'll answer, you know, yes, I do, or no, I don't. But I've never had anybody say, no, I don't. They, uh, They all either see it or perceive it. And so we, we work that way. But uh, that's how we do it.
0: Wow. And so, um, what kind of clients do you, do you usually get? I mean, I'm sure you have a broad spectrum, but is there, what kind of clients do you usually get?
2: <sighs> well, I really don't know how to answer that question because we get clients straight across the board every, every place. Yeah. Um, you know, we can. Have, I, I deal with oncology, for example, people that have cancer. Uh, the only type of client that I work with there are stage fours. They've already been told that they're terminal. A lot of them have hospice right there in the house with them and stuff like that. And I start working with them, and I never sit down there and say, I'm going to cure your cancer. What okay. I tell them is, I'm going to go ahead and make this process a whole lot less stressful for you and a lot less painful because cancer hurts. And, in the process of doing what I do, my track record is ninety nine point eight percent of the time my clients' tumors and cancer cells completely disappear. That's not me doing it. that's them doing it. Wow. And the reason is because I understand cancer. You know I'm, from an allopathic standpoint, I've got it. And I know that, like all autoimmune disorders, it's a misidentification of the MIS enzyme and so the subconscious has turned the immune system onto the cells themselves, the healthy cells. And I have to get the subconscious to identify healthy cells from the basic uh, cancer cell and switch that so that even, (coughs) excuse me, even though they have a compromised immune system from chemotherapy what's left of their immune system will still attack the cancer cells and you know, basically the tumors go away. Yeah. The cancer cells go away. Now, that's one area. Uh, you know, I handle everything from ADD, ADHD, PTSD, uh, people that can't walk, they've had strokes, um, and we get them walking again when everybody else has kind of given up on them. Pain management, I mean, just about anything that you can think of, uh, we handle here.
0: Right. It kind of gives like the whole mind over matter saying a different. Well, the thing is, is the
2: subconscious controls 98% of everything in your body. Right. Anything that you do not have to physically see or touch, that is the realm of the subconscious. And so because of that, I'm in that world all the time where I'm dealing with the subconscious, and the subconscious literally creates miracles. And so that's what we do.
1: Wow. Can you... I know you have some really great stories. Can you just share some of the the more exciting or interesting experiences that you've had using
2: these techniques? Sure, you you, you want to kind of give me a general area to go into so I don't go way off base for you? (laughs)
1: Um, Just, you know, if you have a client come in with a certain issue, I think I remember you talking about someone who didn't have a voice that went into spiritual regression
2: yeah, um, yeah, they didn't have a voice when they came in. They, they well, they could it kind of sounded like a whisper more than anything else. I mean, you really couldn't understand them. But when they went into spiritual uh, progression, what they realized, what they realized through speaking with their elders and asking questions, is in the past, they had always dominated and uh, basically spoke over people and trampled them and things like that. And so in this lifetime, what they had agreed to do was to come back, and they couldn't do that. Now, now they were getting it on the other end. But through the process, the elders sat down there and said, you've learned your lesson, now we're going to give you back your voice, basically. And the person, when they came out of stasis, could talk. Um, that, that's a really good one. We had a person that was in a very bad accident, and she wasn't supposed to have lived, and she did, in constant pain. Um, couldn't walk. I mean, she was told she would never walk again. And she's walking around now with the use of a cane, but she is walking around and she still comes and sees me. And every time she comes in, she's doing better and she's feeling better. So recently, what we did is we just got her off of her uh, opiate medication because for several years they've had her on opiates to control the pain. Well, needless to say with opiates, you can get addicted to that pretty easy. And so we had to get her off of that without going through the massive and uncomfortable side of the withdrawals. And so we were able to do that while she was under medical supervision to be sure that she was coming down properly and wasn't going to have a serious uh, incident from a physical standpoint.
0: Wow. That's interesting. Um, I don't know if this is a stupid question or not, but is the, the difference between spiritual regression and spiritual progression, what's... Is there a difference? I don't know. I keep hearing regression and progression. Is...
2: Well, the regression and progression is really uh, two sides of the same coin. For me to put you into the spiritual world, I have to regress you out of this one. Right. And then, and then progress you into the spiritual world where you can actually sit down and talk to your elders and your advisors and things like that. Now the interesting thing is people will sit down there and get spiritual progression and regression confused with past life regression, which is something totally different. And past life regression, from my standpoint, there is a therapeutic use for it, but from my standpoint, it's mainly entertainment. Mm -hmm. People will come in and they kind of curious, well what was it like in a past life? What was I? And things like that. The really interesting things is that most of the time The stuff that a hypnotist will get, if you go to a past life regression person, it's all very vague.
0: Mm.
2: (laughs) Well, when we do a past life regression, we go like several steps further. We ask very detailed questions. We ask for names, places, and things like that. And then we've got people here in the office that actually research it to see can we verify that this place does exist, that this person did exist, that these people do exist, and that these events that they're describing actually happened. And the really cool thing, to give you one example, was a surfer I had. He was a professional surfer in La Jolla, California. And he was surfing off La Jolla, which is kind of interesting in itself because La Jolla has a very rocky beach. Mm -hmm. It's a very rocky coastline. But he was surfing there. And he came off his board and he went underwater. No big deal. I mean, the guy is like an Olympic swimmer. But when he came up, he was floundering in the water like he couldn't swim, and he almost drowned. Oh, my God. they got him out. From that point on, he couldn't get in the water anymore, which for a professional surfer is not a real positive thing to have happen. (laughs) And when I saw him, it got to the point to where he could not even get into a bathtub. Oh, my God. He could barely get into a shower, provided that the drain didn't back up and water come up over his feet. Uh, If he did, he, like, freaked out. Wow. So what we did is we did a past life regression on him. And what we found out was on this particular day that his event in this life happened, at the precise hour that that happened, like 100 years before, he was a little boy, five years old, and he was on a ship off the coast of San Francisco. And the ship hit a freak storm and sank. Now, in the process of that, he was able to tell me the captain's name, the ship's name, who the first mate was. He could tell me the cargo that they were carrying because they never liked him on, on top of the deck. They always wanted him below decks and to keep out of their way. And so he wasn't supposed to go into the cargo area, but he did, just kind of snooping around. Um, he could tell me the food that they ate, um, all just all types of stuff. Well, a few years later I had the chance to go to the Maritime Museum, and I just went in there. I remembered this particular thing, and I said, hey, would you happen to have any information on a ship that may or may not have gone down out here by this name? And they did a little bit of research, and they said, well, actually, that ship did go down, and the only thing that we have that survived that was the logbook. I said, well, that's fantastic, can I look at the logbook? And they brought out the logbook and put on the white gloves so we could actually go through it. And sure enough, there was the ship's master's name, the same name that he gave me. There was the first mate's name and signature where he signed in on the crew. They did show me the the manifest that was in the logbook for the cargo he was carrying. And it was exactly what he told me they were carrying. How many crew members? He told me exactly how many, and that's exactly how many they were. And he told me where the ship went down. And most importantly was one of things, there was only three passengers on that ship, and one of them was a five-year-old boy yeah. with the name that he gave me. That's so incredible. So it was verified.
1: Wow. I just got the chills. That's yeah. crazy.
2: See, that's the cool thing that happens here. <laughs> when we get into this stuff, we start really making some major headway. The interesting thing is, after that was done, he had no trouble getting in the water again.
0: But, so... But all of that was caused by the initial trauma of him having that surf accident, right? So, do you think these traumas like bring people back?
2: Or, um, yeah, trauma can happen. Like I said, it happened on the exact same day and at the exact same hour that that ship went down. Oh, that's right. And real. when he went in the water at that moment, that was an instant relive of what happened.
0: Wow, that's and so it, crazy.
2: It's like. You know, it's like looking at a piece of Swiss cheese, if you will, and after you slice all the Swiss cheese, you try to put it all together. The holes never quite match up. Right. That's kind of what happened. When he came up, he now saw something totally different, experienced it very, very quickly, and it panicked him. Once we got him back, we put it to rest.
1: Wow. And how easy or difficult is it to take someone to a past life?
2: It's not difficult at all if you know what you're doing. You just have to get the person into uh, a very, very strong theta brainwave, uh-huh. and if you can get them into a gamma, it's even better. But uh, you know, most people deal in the delta, and that's just not deep enough right. to really do a good solid past life.
1: And do you use the Muse headband for the past life regression as well?
2: I do, but I use it so that I got it set up so it's on a monitor and I can actually see the brainwaves. So there is no question I know exactly where this person is from a brainwave status.
1: That's so interesting. And do you teach people this process? I do. You do, okay. Yeah.
0: Cool. Um, I understand you get a lot of referrals from medical doctors. Uh, How does that work? uh, how do you explain this process to someone, someone who who only believes in Western medicine? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's my favorite question.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a really good question. When I talk to doctors, because I'm medically trained, it's easier for me to talk to doctors because I can speak their jargon, I can speak their language. Um, but we don't go into past life with the medical doctors. Mm-hmm. What I sit down there and talk about is for example, let's talk about hypnoanesthesia, which is pain control.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I look at the doctor and I go, okay, this, your patient is going in now for general surgery and they're going to go under general anesthesia. Yeah. What is the most dangerous part of that operation? And without a, without a clue, they're going to come right back and say the anesthesia because that can kill you. Right. right. right okay so what happens if we use hypnoanesthesia where we can have the anesthesiologist there in the room just to make you feel warm and fuzzy but I go ahead and I put them under hypnosis and they feel absolutely no pain and here's the benefit to you there's going to be zero recovery time and they're going to heal about two and a half times faster and they go oh yeah right and they said "How how can you say that and I go well I've got a few peer-reviewed articles. Would you be interested in reading them? And I've had them repeatedly say, well, yeah, if you have anything credible. I go, well, (laughs) let me see. I go, is Mayo Clinic credible to you or no? Johns Hopkins, yes or no? Cedar cyanide yes or no? These are all people that use hypnoanesthesia. Right. I mean, Mayo Clinic uses hypnosis with every single patient they've got. When you go to the Mayo Clinic, they start you off with hypnosis. And they teach you self-hypnosis because they understand the power of the subconscious.
1: Mm.
2: Um, you know, at M.D. Anderson, we use hypnosis. Now, you know, primarily I was dealing in oncology, but we use hypnosis all the time. So when you start hitting these heavyweights, and go, here's what they say. Usually the thing I get is, well, how come I never read these? And I go, I don't know, how far behind in your medical journals are you? <laughs> because you feel like most doctors, you don't have time to read them. That's so true. And yeah. yeah.
1: So how does hypnosis speed up the healing process?
2: That's a really good question. And I don't have a good scientific answer for you. All I know is straight across the board, people that use hypnoanesthesia to go in. Well, let's say, for example, you were going to have gallbladder surgery. Okay, Now, anymore, they use uh, microscopy, which is making very small incisions okay but in the old days they would really you know do a major incision but what happens is the patient comes into the operating room on the gurney and they are completely awake so they transfer themselves over to the table it's not like they have to be lifted and placed on the Mm -hmm. table they're on the table they go ahead I take them down Uh, I get them to the point where they're feeling absolutely no pain whatsoever and I literally shut down pain throughout their entire body. Some only shut it down in the area where the operation's going to be. But I believe in going down the whole body just because you never can tell. The person's very stressed out anyway. Operating rooms are kind of small. It's not like what you see on TV. They're actually kind of small. You've got a lot of equipment taking up, a lot of space, and you've got a lot of people around that table. So the overload of message units is already there. They're three-quarters of the way in hypnosis. All I do is kind of top it off. I make their whole entire body numb. Now, here's the really cool thing. With general anesthesia, what it does is it's not that you're not feeling the pain. Okay? It's there's an amnesiac in it, so you don't remember feeling it. Mm. But if you see a person under general anesthesia, their body will flinch, and it will move. But all of the internal organs, with the exception of the heart, have been rendered basically in a state of suspended animation, if you will. They're not moving. And that's why recovery is so important for you to have gas or bowel movement, okay? We have to get those intestines going again. We have to get everything working. With hypnoanesthesia, anesthesia we don't have that problem. Everything is working. And then I usually will give them uh, the same suggestion several times through there, is you know, your body is yielding to the skill of the surgeon and the surgeon's instruments. And everything is going exactly the way it's supposed to and you're gonna be healthy and happy when this is over and you're not gonna need very much pain medication. Your your comfort level is gonna be very, very comfortable.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: When it's all done, they're sutured up, now we have to get them off the table. Most of the time, unless it's something like open heart surgery, which I've done, most of the time the person will sit up and they will scoot themselves off the table. And so they go not onto another gurney but they actually go into a wheelchair and they're wheeled to their room. With them having that psychological aspect of I'm not going into a recovery room, I'm not feeling very much pain at all or very much discomfort, everything went well and my body has yielded to the skill of the surgeon and now it's healing and I'm all better, it's just like if you take a person, and well, if you've noticed in hospitals, most hospital rooms have a window, right?
0: Right, right.
2: The, re- the reason that they have the window is they found that people heal faster if they can see the outside.
0: Right, mm-hmm. that makes sense.
2: It's kind of the same thing, except on steroids. <laughs> and if you put them in a room now that has a window and they have a few plants in there and lots of life, it just goes that much better for them.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, Do you believe that any type of ailment or disease can be cured through hypnosis or through spiritual regression or progression?
2: Well, first of all, we never use the term cured because the only people, according to the American Medical Association, that can say that they cure anything are medical doctors. And most hypnotists and most hypnotherapists are not licensed medical doctors. So we never use the word cure. Right. But what we do is we look at other aspects and we go, we can relieve these things, okay, or we can improve these things. So, for example, if I'm talking to an oncology patient, I'm not going to look at them at stage four and go, okay, we're going to cure your cancer. No. What I'm going to do is say, listen, we're going to make the medication, the chemotherapy and things like that so it's very comfortable for you. You don't get nauseous. You don't get these other things. And while I'm in there... You know, I'm going to work on your emotional side of things, too. And if the end result is that your tumors go away and the cancer cells in your body are no longer showing up in a blood test, that's a good thing. Now, most of the time, that is a good thing. But sometimes, uh, the person has prepared themselves for death, okay, mentally. Mm -hmm. And their family is prepared for death. And the one thing that I was not prepared for, the very first oncology patient that I had, when she came back with a totally clear scan, was the anger that the family had and she had. Because she had prepared herself for death. The family had prepared themselves for mom dying. Mm -hmm. And now she's got another 20 or 30 years to live. And what the heck am I going to do? And that's exactly what she said. Except she didn't say heck. She said another expletive. (laughs) But what am I going to do? We've already used all of my life insurance. We've, We've cashed it all in. We've had final vacations with the kids. The whole family knows that I'm going to die. We're all prepared for the funeral. All of my neighbors, I've given up my job. I can't ever go back there again. What am I going to do now? And I said, gosh, I don't know. It looks like you've got a clean slate. What have you always wanted to do if you knew that you were going to live for another 20 or 30 years? Yeah. Because you've been given the greatest gift in the world.
1: That's you know, the universe
2: is giving you your life back. Go out and enjoy it and have fun.
1: That's such a good reframe. Oh my god, that got me. Yeah. <laughs> that got me. Um, yeah. Um, so, I, know. I was gonna ask a question based on. Go for it. I don't remember. Wow, well, I stuffed them. I you did, Wait, that, was,
0: <laughs> that was a lot. Uh, that was great. Um, what were you gonna ask? I don't remember now. Okay. Um, well, I will ask a question. Um, I know you said earlier that people think that they don't have any control when they're, when they're under hypnosis, but really they right. have all of the control.
2: Right.
0: But um, can anyone be hypnotized even if they don't want to be? Or uh, once someone is in a trance, do they, do they have, con- you said they do have control bringing themselves in or out of it, right, or right. no?
2: Right. Um, the answer, the old answer was that no person can be hypnotized against their will. The real answer is, yes, they can. Oh. And
1: okay.
2: that's because hypnosis is a perfectly natural state. We all go in and out of hypnosis multiple times every day. If you look at a cell phone, a tablet, a, a computer, a pad, or whatever, for 20 minutes or more, you are in a state of hypnosis. Oh, my. Um, so that's not hard to do and so yes you can put a person in hypnosis against their will they will be more resistant but it happens it's just simply an overload of message units and you trigger the fight or flight response Um, that's the easy thing now when a person is in status okay they're in hypnosis and they're down if they're highly resistant you as the hypnotist or hypnotherapist you have to watch their body a lot very very closely because they'll try to bring themselves out they will either try to bring themselves out of stasis or they'll try to escape by going deeper into hypnosis and at some point hitting the point where they actually go to sleep so the hypnotist or hypnotherapist is constantly doing a juggling act where we're bringing them up out of stasis you know to a certain level and then back down and up and back down which is actually a deepening technique but when you do that um... the person stays at a pretty level state and so you don't have trouble with them either coming out or going down deeper.
1: And if somebody falls asleep during hypnosis, does it still work?
2: No, and here's why. When the body goes to sleep, your brain flips gears and the, what happens is when you go to sleep, the conscious mind begins a download process just like a computer would, okay? And all of the information and all of the things that have happened to you during the day begin to download into the subconscious. And the subconscious decides, is this congruent? Does this agree with everything that I've learned? And if it does, it accepts it as either a positive or a negative known. If it doesn't, it vents it out in the form of dreams, mm. Okay, it's usually early morning dreams. So if a person is in the chair and they go to sleep, they're no longer capable of taking in more information from the subconscious because the subconscious now has gotten quiet and it's receiving information in. Okay, so the hypnotist or hypnotherapist has to be sure that the client does not escape into sleep. And that is an escape technique that some people will use. They feel out of control and they want to escape and this is a way to do it.
1: Right, interesting. And I'm curious, where do you see or do you see that this sort of technology in the future? Do you you see it going more mainstream?
2: Oh, very much so, very much so. Already uh, hypnosis and hypnotherapy is widely accepted in Europe. In fact, if you were to go to France and wanna practice hypnoanesthesia, you actually join the board, the medical board for anesthesiologists because it's that accepted. It's that common. Here in North America, we're a little bit slower. Yeah, um,
0: <laughs> I'd say and, so. <laughs> you know, there's a
2: number of reasons why. I mean, some people say it's big pharma because they're looking at this if you don't need our drugs to do this. If you can do it, you know, yourself, then we're out of business. But for whatever reason, it's a little bit slower and there have been some major roadblocks. However, the industry is overcoming all of those roadblocks. Mm. And so, yeah, I see it going very, very mainstream. In the next 10 to 15 years, I see this where you'll be going into a medical office um, or at a hospital or whatever, and you will be talking to a hypnotherapist.
0: Well, I even
2: with
0: you. I even love now how I uh, I helped someone at the hospital recently, and there's a hospital here in New York, and they have a meditation room, yeah. and I just think that's so great, you know. It t- is to even is even to be welcoming that right now is like he, to me it like seems huge, so.
2: It is, and the reason is is because stress is one of the side effects of stress. Is it shuts down your immune system. Yeah. So if you're already ill, you need your immune system to be working. Right. And you, and stress is caused by fight syndrome. You're trying to do battle with something that you feel is out of your control, and you know you can't fight it. So if we can put the person into a more relaxed or less stressed type mindset, the subconscious is going to allow the immune system to reactivate again and now it's going to help fight the disease, which is really what our bodies were designed to do. Our bodies, for the most part, are set up to heal themselves and repair themselves. Um, You know, we've got a couple of organs that don't, but for the most part, you know, our organs do repair themselves completely. That's why if you look at a person who has a liver transplant, how much... Of a liver transplant, do they need? Do they need a whole liver? No, they don't. They only need a little bit, about like that.
0: Yeah.
2: And within seven years, they've got a whole new liver. Crazy. You know, our bodies were designed that way. Um, You know, we just have to learn to start working with our bodies and allowing our bodies to heal naturally rather than trying to force it into another root.
1: Do you believe that that all disease is caused, is at its roots caused suppressed emotion?
2: Uh, Wow, that's painting with a really, really wide paintbrush (laughs) Uh, I would not say that all diseases are caused by that I would say that all diseases grow very, very rapidly because of that Right If you have repressed emotions then usually you're dealing in fear mm -hmm. and until you can alleviate that fear, that's going to you know, be the big thing for you. And fear equals stress, and stress equals shut down immune system, right. which is basically like taking a whole bunch of little kindergartners and throwing a great big pile of candy out in the middle of the playground and saying, go have fun. They're all going to go for the candy. Well, the same thing with the disease. If it doesn't have an immune system to help fight it off, it's going to start growing and replicating and doing everything it can. Right. Because as any living thing wants to do, it wants to reproduce and it wants to continue to live.
0: Right. diseases are not different. Yeah. I want to ask a quick question before I ask my next question. Okay. <laughs> um, you mentioned that when we look at our screens and we look at our phones and we look at our iPads that we're in a hypnosis state when yeah. when we're doing that. So do you think so does the content that we're looking at on our screens in that moment affect our subconscious?
2: Yeah, because when you go into hypnosis, you become very, very suggestible. Right. And so, yeah, uh, I mean, stupid content suddenly seems to make more <laughs> sense or, you know, that's not so bad or it's not as crazy as, you know, what it might be. Um, and the best place you can see that is is on infomercials. Right. I mean, when, when do they have the infomercials? They usually have the infomercials late at night.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: They have it... Uh, going on and if you listen to the volume the volume always increases that's nothing more than hypnoidal commands and you're watching the infomercial you notice it's very very fast paced that's overloading you with message units you've got a lot of screenshots going in different places they throw up a timer up there to increase that anxiety right okay then i've got to act quickly i've got to make a decision (laughs) and you just pick up the phone and you call it. The next thing you've known is you know, you've bought several thousand dollars worth of stuff that you don't even know what to do with.
1: Right, I'm pretty sure I've done that a few times. <laughs> Most people have.
0: I'm pretty Most sure I've wanted have. to do that so many well, times. Can,
1: can I just go back to um, the idea of hypnosis going mainstream? How do you think that's gonna go over with the pharmaceutical companies?
2: Uh, not real well. <laughs> and I say that because my wife's cousin yeah. is the CEO of the largest pharmaceutical company in Canada. Mm. And he and I have talked about this at some length. And, yeah, it's not going to go over real well because what, here, here's what happens with Big Pharma. They send people out, and they'll go into very remote areas, and they'll talk to, like, shamans and healers and things like that they'll find out what medicinal plants they use and the formulations that they use basically. Then they'll bring back a sample of all those things. And they bring that stuff back into the lab and they start distilling it to find out really what is it in there that causes this to happen with this formulation. And then once they have that, then they start playing around with the synthetic stuff to duplicate that result. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that they do that is because anything that is natural cannot be patented. Mm. So if we can take something and make it 99.9999 natural, but just have that one little itsy-bitsy piece of synthetic, now it can be patented because it's not a natural-occurring substance. There is something done to it, and then they can charge. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be one of those things that big pharma you're gonna see a change in the whole business application of it. And I think you're gonna see some pretty big changes on the type of stuff that big pharma does. I mean, already big pharma is starting to go in and do research. I mean, I've got some pharmaceutical companies that are actually funding some of the research that I'm doing oh, wow, uh, on great. the brainwave stuff. They wanna know how is it working mm. and why. Mm. Now, you know, are they gonna to try to duplicate it? Yeah, probably. But the reality right. is, is we're doing you know the neurofeedback and we're doing different things, and that cannot be duplicated under a drug. Right. right. But they still want the information. They still want to know. So I think that they really look at it as this is inevitable. They're just trying to figure out a way to prolong it.
1: Right. Right. Hmm. So interesting.
0: Well. Uh, so David, you have this new book out. Get what you want from the bedroom to the boardroom. Can you yep. tell us a little bit about it?
2: Sure. It is the ultimate relationship book. Oh, great. Anything and everything that you've ever wanted to know about why relationships go the way they go, that's in that book. And I trust me, you are going to see yourself in it, and you're going to see other people that you know in it.
1: I read but. it and I did see myself in it. I saw myself in it too. I'm definitely, <laughs>
0: yeah, we talked about it a little bit and we were like, you're definitely this and you're definitely that.
2: <laughs> but I think um, we're all a little the, bit. The really, the really cool thing about this is once you understand what you are and how you take information in, and that's basically what relationships is all about. It's communication and how do I take in you know, information and what are the psychological traits of an analytical, and what are the psychological traits of an emotional? Uh, Once you understand that, now we can start dealing with it. So for example, if Julie, if you happen to be more on the emotional side of things, Mm -hmm. okay, or more right brain dominant, if you will, and your boyfriend or husband happens to be more analytical or left brain dominant, Mm -hmm. then you know that you've, to keep the spice in it, you have to keep them off You know, just off-kilter, just a little bit. So, for example, one of the things that has been done is the analytical will write to the girlfriend or wife and say, Hey, babe, what's she doing? And she writes back and she goes, Oh, I'm out shopping with the girls. And that's it. Well, that just made that analytical's brain start spinning now. Well, she's shopping. Where is she? What's she doing? What girlfriends is she with and everything else? Thousands of questions coming in there. Now, his emotional side is lifting up. Analytical side is dropping down Mm -hmm. a little bit. And the object is to get both so that they're kind of like this. It's always a balancing act. Right. Okay? But so that you're more on an even kilter instead of going like that and then going into crisis. And then the next thing is, oh, well, what time will you be home? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I'll be home when we finish shopping. See, everything is very open-ended and there is no set answer. Now, the analytical person when they're dating appear to be very emotional.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's
2: kind of like such. a trap, if you will, just kind of suck the other person in. So they're very <laughs> interested in listening to you and talking and helping out and going to things, you know, like movies and concerts and all the stuff that the more emotional person wants to. And then, once they've got that commitment, it's almost like, bam, they do a 180. And going to the movies is out, going to the concerts is out. They they don't want to do anything. What they really want to do is kind of like stay at home or go out and do onesies and twosies things. But they don't like crowds of people. They don't like a lot of other things. And I hear that repeatedly from people that come in for relationship counseling. It's, good God, you know, as soon as I married him, he did a 180 on me. And I don't even know who this guy is. (laughs) Well, you know, he's an analytical, and he's acting like an analytical. And this is the way they do. So in the book, what I tried to do is pull back the curtain and explain it in common, everyday language so that you can actually see what it is. And then once you see what it is, I tell you how to adjust it. And you determine how much you adjust it, one way or the other, until you're happy. And it's not manipulation, it's not control. It's you're giving them information the way they like to have information given to them. Right. And when that happens, you become a very valued asset to them. Right. And likewise, they become a very valued asset to you.
1: Do you find that more men are, are analytical and more women are emotional or does it matter?
2: It doesn't really matter because that is determined from the secondary caregiver. Now, with that said, there is an exception to that rule, and that is right here in the Midwest. Here in central Missouri, we have analyticals marrying analyticals for multiple generations. And the way that you are is usually determined by age 14, between the ages of 7 and 14, is when that particular part of you is gonna happen. That's what we refer to as your sexuality. How do I form relationships, personal, romantic, and working relationships, and how do I take in information? Between seven and 14, with the exception of here in central Missouri, I have seen a three-year-old that is more analytical than the most analytical person I've ever met in my life. Well, let's look why. Mommy and daddy are both analyticals. Grandma and Grandpa on both sides are analyticals. Great grandma and great grandpa on both sides are both analyticals. Aunts, uncles, and cousins are all analyticals. This kid doesn't stand a chance. It's gonna be an analytical.
1: Right. Do you think that's a bad thing?
2: No, it's not. It just is. It's kinda of like Pooh Bear. It just is. I love him. It's not her. good, it's not bad. It just
0: <laughs> is. I love him. Yeah.
2: You know, so what happens? Where it becomes a bad thing is you happen to be on an emotional side, okay? You're much more touchy-feely. You like uh, crowds. You like to do group things. You like concerts. You like movies. You like all of this stuff that the analytical usually feels very uncomfortable with. And the analytical, in the beginning, presents themselves as liking all of this stuff. And then suddenly it all changes. And then the emotional (laughs) stops and... Looks, at, I mean, the emotional's biggest fear is they don't love me. Mm, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. The analytical's biggest fear is I'm going to fail as in my profession. Yeah. An analytical, it's work, <laughs> friends, and associates that can help me with work, and family is third. For an emotional, family is first, friends are second, and work is something I do just to pay the bills because I have to, okay. So, already you're seeing that the value system is different. Okay. Well, with the emotional being afraid that they don't love me anymore, the first thing that happens to the analytical is the emotional becomes more clinging, coming back to them. why don't you love me? What did I do? What can I do for you? And the analytical feels like you're smothering them. Okay, you're, you're, I, I need some room to breathe and stuff like that. And... So that's what leads the relationship to go from the plateau down and descend into crisis mode. And unfortunately, when I see people, that's where I usually see them as in the crisis mode. So we have to get stuff going very, very quickly in order to save the relationship or save the marriage if they indeed want it saved.
0: Right.
1: Interesting.
0: David, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Um, yes. Thank you so much for being here. I've been wanting well, thank you so
2: much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. And yeah. I wish you the very, very best.
1: Thank you. Thank so you much. so much. Thank bye you. Bye-bye now. <laughs> bye. bye, David. That completes this episode of the unexplained Truths. If you enjoyed it, be sure to like, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you in the next episode. Want more? Head over to our YouTube channel, The Unexplained Truths.
0: Do you or someone you know have an interesting story to tell? If you would like to be on our show, please email us at truths at gmail.com.